Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. How do you define libertarianism? For me, there are two pithy ways of describing the libertarian ethos that I really like. One is Reason Magazine's tagline of free minds and free markets. And then the other comes from the title of Matt Kibbe's book, Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff. Both of these get at some key ideas. The ability to speak freely and respect for others doing so. Economic freedom, nonviolence, non-interventionism, respect for the rule of law. Both Reason and Matt Kibbe's Free the People are two organizations doing terrific work in the media space. They push these messages out to a wider audience, but they are not the only ones working to promote libertarian ideas. Today, we're going to highlight three groups talking to different constituencies. First up is the Libertarian Christian Institute, which connects faith with the liberty-based worldview. After that, we're going to hear from the Libertarian Policy Foundation, which trains leaders to advocate for smaller government and libertarian policies in communities all across the country. And finally, we'll head to the Academy with the Mises Institute, helping to expand the understanding of Austrian economics. If your assumption that any discussion of libertarian ideas just boils down to legalization of drugs and a drift towards anarchy, you are going to have your horizons broadened. So let's jump in. As we know, faith is often an important driver for charitable giving. One thing some people don't realize about donors' trust is that a lot of our donors are active in far more than public policy. Many, including myself, use their fund to support churches, synagogues, religious programs of all sorts. But we also support a lot in the public policy space, and we have a good number of libertarian-leaning groups. Well, our first guest today is a mix of all of that. The Libertarian Christian Institute aims to help Christians articulate a case for a free society based on Christian principles. Norman Horn is the founder and president of LCI. So Norman, let's start with the obvious question. Jesus Christ, he was a socialist, right? <laughs> well, Peter, thanks for having me on, of course. And uh, the the quick answer to that is, well, no, uh, <laughs> Jesus was not a socialist. Uh, for one thing, that would be somewhat anachronistic. And it would be similar, similarly anachronistic to suggest that Jesus was a libertarian as well. Um, but we like to say at LCI that, you know, Jesus may not have been a libertarian, but he's glad that we are. Uh, because ultimately, you know, Christ was a monarch uh, where he is the king and he's the king of the universe. Uh, that's that's what's important. But as it pertains to, you know, man to man interaction, uh, how do we create a society that can promote human flourishing? Well, then we realize that even through the scriptures, there is a uh, an, an impetus for private property and with private property come private property rules and understanding how these things work together is what enables us to provide uh, and serve one another uh, in, in such a way that makes for great human flourishing opportunities. And so that's what we're really all about at LCI. A bit of tongue in cheek with the socialist thing, but it is also not necessarily <laughs> yeah. immediately obvious that Christianity and libertarianism mm-hmm. are completely compatible. So why and how does LCI make a case for a clear reconciliation between Christian 
theology and libertarian principles? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because yeah, it's not necessarily something that's obvious right off the top. So the answer to the why question, why do we do this, is that we are convinced that libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. Now, there's been a lot of folks throughout the ages who, in Christian history, who have uh, theorized and thought about the way in which politics kind of plays into our faith. Uh, and we see this all the time. This is a, you know, even wh whether we're talking about the so-called Christian nationalism right now, or just, you know, traditional ways in which we've talked about uh, Christianity in America uh, over the last, you know, 250 years and the, with the Great Awakenings and how that played into politics and whatnot. So the, the why, though, ultimately is that if we are convinced that libertarian ideas are the way in which we should be organizing society, then we should probably see how that concords with scripture itself. Uh, is there is are there parallels? Are there misconnects? What do we need to kind of observe, uh, both from evident reason and from scripture that enable us to serve each other better? And I would venture to say that actually a lot of people have the complete opposite view that many libertarians are actually more self described as atheists or better described as atheists. I'm curious, why do you think that perception exists? I mean, is it true or is it really just that a lot of people haven't awoken to the libertarian principles in Christianity yeah. and, and see that overlap? I think there's probably two reasons for that. One is, is kind of just a, uh, call it a lack of knowledge. And it's not, it's, it's not a, you know, a, a malevolent ignorance per se. It's just, we don't know. A lot of folks don't realize that libertarianism really comes from the classical liberal ideas uh, that came from Christianity and from great Christians in the in the Western world who built this up. And so whether we're talking about, you know, folks like John Locke or Adam Smith, I mean, so many of these people were believers. And of course, when it comes to, you know, the history of America, uh, what I don't care who, who, who you talk to and try to you know convince that, oh, well, founding fathers were all deists or something. Well, look, there's a lot of evidence to suggest otherwise to that. And that's OK. Like we understand that that uh, that the whole point of what the Americans experiment was about was not to try and create some sort of theocratic state. They understood classical liberal values in this respect. And so that's that's really important. So libertarianism kind of comes from and emerges from uh, a Christian history, if you will. Uh, so that, that's something that is underappreciated. Now, the other reason I think, unfortunately, is more of a cultural one internally to us libertarians. And that's kind of like that. Well, Ayn Rand was there. <laughs> and so many, you know, we like to say, you know, well, it usually begins with Ayn Rand. Well, that's not the way it began for me. In fact, for me, it, it did begin with a girl, but it wasn't Ayn Rand. Uh, that's a whole nother story. But nonetheless, you know, a lot of the the kind of folks who did come on board because of Rand are often the loudest voices in the room. We kind of know this, and, and that's okay. We love interacting together. We should appreciate the diverse interactions and voices that we have within the libertarian movement. But what we shouldn't do is try to let that become the dominant uh, way in which we think about libertarianism. And, and I would just suggest that, uh, that there are, in fact, way more Christians who are out there who are libertarians than we often want to give it credit for. Whether you're looking at surveys that happened 10 years ago or just going to a Libertarian Party convention for that matter. And now we're not, a, I'm not by necessity endorsing it. I'm just saying that this is where people are. You're going to find probably on the order of 40 to 50% have some type of Christian religious belief. That's, that's like actually on the, on the stats. And that's kind of comporting with even the broader um, American milieu, uh, which probably even more 
uh, just broadly speaking in in in, uh, in America, for instance, uh, still claim some measure of Christianity. It's going down, uh, but that's just the reality. So it shouldn't surprise us. And in fact, I, I think that should be we should consider that a strength that we're able to get along so well together because we have a common goal. Now you all are just content machines over at the leadership, the Libertarian Christian Institute. You have a number of podcasts. I get exhausted trying to do yep. this one. You guys have a bunch. <laughs> uh, you've got all other all kinds of other materials. Uh, you're working towards some video stuff. You got you got a lot going on. Talk to me a bit about all of this stuff that you're putting out and, and the impact that it has. Oh, well, the, I mean, where do we begin? Uh, you know, we started off really as just a small little website, uh, something I started up in late 2008, and it was just a place where I could post articles. Uh, but as we grew, we we can we kind of kept on building, you know, momentum and steam. And, and now we have eight active podcasts. We are hoping to onboard another two in the next year. Uh, we've got, of course, a, a, a flurry of articles as well. Um, we've kind of doubled down on the podcast and audio realm. Uh, so that's that's kind of our primary at this point. Uh, but we still are publishing a lot of articles uh, on the order of, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of about 80 to 90 a year. And uh, we've got, you know, also a, a an academic journal, uh, which is mainly for the scholar side. But we're we're really interested in pushing that forward. Uh, for our new non-scholar audience as well. So one of the we think it's important that our Christian brethren understand that there is serious scholarship that can be done and that you can understand. You don't have to be a scholar in order to get involved in this regard. Uh, so we want people to see that too. Uh, we're also doing a whole lot in the realm of video now. That's kind of our ongoing project. Like as you mentioned, uh, this is something we know that people want. Uh, we are trying to, you know, reutilize even content that we produced before in, in you know, build, breaking it down into more digestible components and putting that out in video form because that's what people want to see. And we think that that's a, a great opportunity for us to expand here. The other thing that I would say is that it's really on our horizon is expanding beyond English, <laughs> which is really, really exciting for us. Uh, we have just noted that, you know, we're read in 100 different countries believe it or not. like It's kind of mind-boggling to see just how far this will expand. Where we see our second biggest audience kind of building up is Latin America. There is a constant, uh, almost constant, I should say, uh, stream of what's going, of, of conversations happening on the LCI Latino page, uh, which has been in operation just for a couple of years now. And we're getting a lot of requests for translation. So we're actually trying to build out the system where we use things like AI to do translation, but we need, we're need we using volunteers and others to try and proofread that. Uh, we want to start a Spanish language podcast. We see this as the future, uh, especially with things like what's been going on in Argentina. And, uh, and it's like there's just so much opportunity there. There's so much need and so much desire uh, to, for us to try and bring what we have. Uh, to the church out there, so we're really looking forward to that. I that's such a that's such a cool, forward-looking opportunity. And you know, you think in Latin America, there's a lot of people who are Christian first, where you know faith is still very strong, and uh, and these libertarian ideas certainly could be a great antidote to some of the things that are plaguing some of those nations down there. And to combine those together would just be phenomenal. So I, I wish you well on that. That's that's really. That's really neat. So you mentioned some of the great areas that you're looking to grow, but kind of diving in on that as we wrap up, I mean, what does growth look like for LCI in the years to come? Yeah, I mean, that that is a great question. And we've we pondered this frequently. 
because it's important for us to kind of have a vision for what what we can do to make the biggest impact. So first and foremost, uh, we, we see that like video production, as I mentioned earlier, is like probably the fastest way that we can begin to see ever more kind of expanding realms and audience uh, because there's just so many people that are looking for that. And so what we've really tried to, to begin doing is thinking about the way in which we produce content as kind of a funnel. Uh, which is kind of strange to strange to hear on some level, but it's similar. You have to kind of think about it almost like a sales process. Now it sounds a little funky. We want we would we, we don't want to be super salesy in all of this, but when we kind of model it this way, we we see that there's something to be gained. And by that I mean we need to understand that people approach us from different angles. Some folks come in and they're immediately ready to consume the big stuff, the big articles, the two, you know, 2000, 4000 book level treatment type material. But some folks aren't ready for that. And if they're not ready for that, then we should try to provide them with something that e eases them in and invites them in in a way that engages with them, provides them with something useful so that they can walk away and be thinking about it. That's where things like shorter podcasts, short video clips, and other things that kind of you know, summaries, things that help them to, to more to, at a bird's eye view, get what they need out of it and then invite them into something more. So by building out a community uh, that will then that can further invite them in, that's the that's the other kind of big step there. So growth to us looks like, you know, a, a more comprehensive way of reaching other people in varying ways, inviting them into a community and then challenging them to take a step in the right direction. At the risk of making a bunch of people mad, libertarians are not usually the best at inviting people in, but Christians <laughs> have a much better track well, record yeah, of that. And so that's a thing. You can lean in on that and uh, and hopefully LCI's work will continue to grow. We've talked for years about how even evangelism from the Christian perspective would actually kind of help from a from just a construct a constructive point of view, libertarian ideas and, and trying to spread spread that around. So we're we're grateful for the opportunity. Amen. Thank you, Norman. There are a lot of think tanks and policy groups that train conservative and free market advocates and look no further than our last episode of Giving Ventures, but very few have a stated little L libertarian worldview. Filling that gap is our next guest, the Libertarian Policy Foundation. With its sister organization, the Libertarian Policy Institute, it helps community leaders, elected or otherwise, better advance real libertarian principles. Nicholas Sarwark is founder and executive director of the Foundation and Institute and brings many years of knowledge from his time leading the Libertarian Party. So, Nick, as I noted, the Libertarian Policy Foundation is the C3 sister to the C4 Libertarian Policy Institute. Describe big picture mission and the role that each plays in carrying that out. The Libertarian Policy Foundation is the educational arm. Um, it it seeks to teach people how to properly advocate for libertarian policy solutions, how to be better messengers, how to be more effective in showing other people who may not come to a policy issue from the same place as a conservative or libertarian would, where that common ground is and how we can achieve movement in that direction that brings people together and doesn't go across these partisan boundaries that have sort of built up in society, it does the educational side of the training and the outreach to educate people on the issues. 
the Libertarian Policy Institute is more focused on the advocacy once an issue is defined or framed in a particular state, in a particular election. So, for example, if there's an initiative to repeal a grocery tax in a state, the actual on-the-ground advocacy, recruiting candidates, um, educating voters as we get closer to election, that would be more on the 501c4 Libertarian Policy Institute side. The foundation does more of maybe the year prior taking a class of 10 to 20 activists who are interested in solving policy problems and putting them through an intensive Amplify training session where they learn storytelling, common ground, the nuts and bolts of being an effective advocate, whether it's in public or at their local um, city council meeting. And to what extent is the foundation crafting new policy versus just helping people really understand the big picture principles? We have a mix. Um, One of the things that we've tried to do in the the broader movement is really work with other people who are aligned and try and amplify their voices. So we don't try to reinvent the wheel if there's already a good policy out there. For example, if there's an SPN affiliated organization in the state that has done a lot of work to say, reduce grocery taxes in the past or expand housing um, in a place that's dealing with a homelessness crisis, will often just find that common ground with them and help the effort that's already started. But there are areas like um, immigration policy where we've drafted papers with innovative solutions that look to change some of the incentives if there's not a policy that looks like it, it fits with our ethos, which is really just real world solutions for some of these tough problems that bring people together, that that have a broad range of support across the political spectrum and don't immediately code as one or the other, as right or left, because we, we want to be national and we want to give tools to people in states that are both deep red, deep blue, and maybe not sure where they are. I mentioned at the top, he used to be the chairman for the National Libertarian Party, the political side, the political brand for the libertarian ideas. What in your tenure there did you see that helped lead you to start this institute? It's funny, the the experience of being chairman of the Libertarian National Committee from 2014 to 2020 through two very monumental presidential elections and a very exciting time The biggest problem we would run into is that people are, as I heard at an Atlas event recently, groupish. People want to be part of a group. They want to be part of a tribe. And, you know, the libertarians are a tribe just like any other. I would go out and talk to people and they would say, I love your ideas. I love this policy idea. I think your candidates are spot on with what they're advocating but I won't vote for them because they're not part of my party. I have to vote for my party because I'm loyal to my party. My candidate isn't going to do those things, but they are on my team and I'm a team player. What the Libertarian Policy Foundation tries to do is just drop that resistance, right? By being truly, truly nonpartisan, not nonpartisan with scare quotes, 
we work with people who are from as far right, as far left, or anywhere in between as you can get, because we're just talking about the policies. And policy by its nature is not partisan. Parties can choose to align themselves with the policy. And sometimes that flip-flops, as we've seen in American politics many times. People who used to be on one side of an issue, the party bosses get together and go, yeah, we're really losing a lot of votes, so we're going to come and be on the other side of it. We try to take the approach of saying, if we just put the good ideas out there and we bring together coalitions around very simple easy to accomplish 60 to 80% approval kind of policies, we don't have to worry about who gets the credit. And we let the politicians from whatever party they're in all carry that same banner. So if you want to stop taxing the groceries that people put on their table, because that's a necessity of life and it's really regressive, You can bring in very conservative anti-tax activists, and you can bring in very progressive anti-poverty activists, and they can all come together behind that common goal. And the libertarian policy gets implemented. We just don't get the credit for it. But the credit is not really what we're in it for. You've mentioned the grocery tax a couple times, which is a good salient issue. Is there a policy, whether it's that or something else, that you think if you could march that policy win across the country, people might actually look at the little L libertarian side and say, oh, maybe there is something to There this. are a few policies like that. Grocery tax is one that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, professionally, I was a public defender for many years and dealt with a lot of people who are dealing with poverty and the issues around it. And It is a just brutally regressive tax that generally doesn't bring in a lot of revenue, but does disproportionately hurt poor people and and actually causes some poor health outcomes as well. That one, we are making a a high priority in the, I think, there were 13 states last I checked that still had it, although Kansas just reduced theirs by 50%. Um, So we're reducing it wherever it exists. Mm. The other big one is housing policy. Housing policy is huge, and it is not captured by any one of the the dominant political parties in the country, specifically the ability to, to build more housing and the freedom to build more housing on property you own and exercise those property rights without people who are not property owners getting a veto over building housing. So going back to the, the work of the foundation, trainings are a big piece of it. What what do these trainings look like? Who's who's in the room? Who's coming out? So to these? who comes to the, the trainings tends to be people who are either liberty curious, um, people who have been in politics for a while, but are just trying to sharpen their saw a little bit. Uh, maybe they've taken leadership or Wellstone training in the past, and they want to get a different perspective that is less partisan in its um, approach. Uh, And the partisan nature of political training often comes down to what tools you use, right? So uh, Republicans tend to use a lot more money and direct mail. Democrats tend to use a lot more uh, union organizing power. We take a different approach um, where what we, we train people to do is look at the, the community that you're in, 
identify the biggest issues that are not being addressed by the dominant party and have a lot of appeal to the people in the community and then write a compelling story. We use a personal narrative model. We go through a lot of role-playing for media stuff. Um, Identify which voters you want to target. Identify who is and isn't a receptive audience. So our trainings are very intensive. We do about an eight-hour long classroom with meals and networking breaks. It's a full day. Oftentimes people will stay the night uh, in order to get some of that networking. And I've had people who've been elected to, you know, offices representing hundreds of thousands of people come out of the training saying, I learned things that I didn't know because that policy forward approach is not the dominant way that people do politics in this country. Right now, it's very party focused or very tribal because it's polarized. We want to teach people how to depolarize in order to achieve success. You're 100% right on that. And it's, it's nice to think that there are people falling back on policy a little bit more. So kind of as we wrap up, what what does the Institute and the foundation look like in five years? How do you How do you measure success? We measure success based on whether or not our policy goals get achieved. So anytime we take a policy priority like grocery tax, or let's say cannabis legalization in the states that haven't done it yet, or um, housing reform, where there's a statewide either reduction in parking minimums or the ability to build by right. Because we choose policy goals that are objective, we keep track of the stats. How many states are still taxing groceries? How many jurisdictions won't let you build something unless you build a lot of parking spaces? How many places is cannabis still illegal? And what we hope to see is that we get policy victories in states that we work in so that we can clearly show to our donors, this is the cause, this is the effect. We came into a state. um, One of the examples that is very recent in Alabama in 2022, we, through the Institute, the the C4 side, recruited uh, a number of candidates. I think it was 67 candidates to run all on kind of a unified platform, including the only challenger to the incumbent lieutenant governor. And the candidate we recruited got beaten, I think, 85-15. There's no chance at all. And in the next legislative session, the lieutenant governor in that state is also the leader of the the legislature. He pushed through a 25% reduction in the grocery tax, which was one of her key issues in her campaign with near unanimous support from both chambers. A truly nonpartisan, good governance, better for the people kind of policy change. And that had been an issue that progressive activists had been pushing on in Alabama for decades, but because they're primarily associated with one party and it was seen as a partisan victory, there was no movement on the issue. When we made it something that was nonpartisan, Now there was an opening for people in a deeply partisan state to do the right thing because it didn't have the same baggage. And so we like to see ourselves as a catalyst to maybe get through some of the resistance in states where there's an entrenched group that, you know, they can't get out of the problems. 
we give them a different way to look at it to get them around to the right decision. That is a great example of of a real win. That's that's awesome. Well, Nick Sarwark, really glad to talk to you and, and look forward to hearing how uh, the Libertarian Policy Institute and Foundation develop. Thank you so much, Peter. To quote from the libertarianism.org website, quote, laissez-faire is the libertarian position on economic policy, end quote. Few names are as closely associated to laissez-faire economic ideas as is Ludwig von Mises, the early 20th century economist and pioneer in the Austrian school of economics. And it is Mises who lends his name to the premier Austrian economics-focused academic center, the Mises Institute. With its academic training and articles for a lay audience, Mises Institute advocates for free market capitalists, economy, and a private property order that rejects taxation, monetary debasement, and a coercive state monopoly of protective services. Dr. Thomas J. DeLorenzo is the fairly new president of the Mises Institute, and I am delighted to talk to you today, Tom. Please be with you, Peter. So before we get into all the details of what the Institute does, I am fascinated by the fact that you are based in Auburn, Alabama. There are not a lot of uh, policy shops in Alabama. There's a great state think tank there. But how did you come to be in Auburn? Well, uh, the Mises Institute was started 41 years ago by Lou Rockwell and Murray Rothbard with the assistance of Ron Paul and Henry Hazlitt and Margaret von Mises, the wife of Ludwig von Mises. And back in those days, there weren't a lot, you know, our, our group, our, our like-minded uh, compatriots uh, was, were far fewer than they are today. And there happened to be a man in uh, Auburn, Alabama, who was a, a well-known uh, lawyer and on the board of trustees of uh, Auburn University. His name is John Denson, who heard about this. Who, and he was also a, a big reader. You know, he was a practicing attorney, but he is also a big reader and, he, and a big reader of Austrian economics throughout his life. And when he heard about this, he invited Lou Rockwell to consider uh, being next to a big university, Auburn University. They had a fine economics department at the time, and there always has been some collaboration between the economics department at Auburn and the Mises Institute, even though they're totally separate and have no formal or financial relationship of any kind. But we've had a lot of friends that come from there and, and, and benefited from our programs, and we have benefited from being associated with them. So I gave the briefest overview of what you do, but how should people think about the Mises Institute and its work? Well, it's based, it's an economic education institute, uh, and uh, our purpose is to spread the word as widely as possible, to, not just to academics, but to anybody who's interested in learning about uh, free market economics, the role of the state, uh, libertarianism, and especially uh, the works of Ludwig von Mises, and uh, our website, uh, Mises.org, got considered to be the best economics website in the world. And for years, I've been telling people, you don't need to go to college and get a degree in economics. You can be a very well-educated citizen by just reading the website and making use of the mountains of in free information, uh, entire books and articles of all sorts uh, on our website. It's true. There is a ton of stuff on that website, I actually was poking around and I watched a video that was on there about the food pyramid and it was really instructive and it wasn't dogmatic. It wasn't uh, trying to, it probably was trying, I mean, it was laying out facts that kind of convert you to the idea that maybe government shouldn't be involved in this, but it wasn't dogmatic. It didn't pound you over the head with it. It just laid things out. I imagine 
that that's a big piece of a lot of what you do is just laying out the facts. Yes, we have a lot of podcasts that we do, and some of them uh, get 50, 60, 80,000 views per month as, as far as that goes. We have a beginner's uh, videos of uh, people who are, you know, not really haven't done much reading yet on, on these issues who can, uh, you know, so there's like a beginner's uh, 10-minute video on socialism, for example. And so we, have, we do everything from that to uh, publishing children's books. My colleague, Jonathan Newman, has been uh, started up that kind of a program. We have a book club for college students primarily, but open to anybody. Also, they meet once a month uh, virtually, and we're going to have a, a few in-person meetings also here in Auburn. And we do everything from that to uh, research conferences for graduate students and professors once or twice a year. And we have big, we have a big conference coming up in May on uh, human action. It's the 75th anniversary of the publication of the famous book, Human Action by Ludwig von Mises. And that's going to be a, a big event for us. We're going to publish a commemorative uh, book based on the, the papers presented at the event. And the participants will get a special issue of human action to take home with them as well. And so those are just some of the things uh, that we are, are involved in doing. Yeah, no, that sounds like a, a great event. What, yeah, particularly as we come up to the 75th anniversary of human action, what is the state of Austrian economics in, in the U.S. and in the world in higher education today? Do you see it expanding, contracting? Oh, well, well, like I said, I, I just got the latest uh, report, monthly report of all of our activities, including all the podcasts and the downloads. And I think human action had something like 37,000 downloads just last month. Hmm. And uh, I'm not sure that's the exact number, but it's in that range. And we have had other books uh, by Murray Rothbard and others uh, in the past month had 47, 48,000 downloads. And we, we have a, a, a collection of academics now all over the world. There's a Japanese Mises Institute. We have friends in Czech Republic. Uh, there's a Brazilian Mises Institute uh, also. And we get, we get inquiries all the time from people all over the world asking uh, permission to use our materials, which, of course, we gladly give permission to. And so uh, compared to the, the old days when the Mises Institute was started, we do have a large army now of, of academics. And we also have an apprenticeship program now for people in all walks of life in any kind of job who get extra training in Austrian school economics and we, we uh, encourage them to participate in our, our writing articles for our website, podcasts, and a lot of them do that. And, and, and they're happy to do it. They're, these are people who are thrilled to do that. We pay them to, to, to be a part of us, part of our, our enterprise here. And so it's not just for academics. It's for economics. It's for everybody. It's about, as Ludwig von Mises said, it's about economics is about life. It's not just about making money and finance and investing and the things that most people think of when they hear uh, the word economics. It's about the study of life, which is why uh, Mises called his book Human Action. Well, and let's dwell on that a little bit, you know, not just the academic side, but the the lay person side, the folks like me, folks like a lot of people who probably are listening to this podcast who aren't involved in academics, but care about these issues. Talk to us a little bit more about what you're doing to help push some of those ideas out into a general audience. Well, when you go on our website, you check out the podcasts, of which there are many. We also have a lot of 
very well-made YouTubes. Where we have we have uh, great technology that we've inv invested in here at the Mises Institute to produce uh, YouTube videos, uh, educational videos. And so, and, uh, and like I said, they go from beginners to people who are just maybe maybe have run across one or two articles that piqued their interest to PhD students and to professors uh, and, and anybody. And so we do that. Of course, the website itself has a lot of very readable articles. And, uh, and we have conferences. Uh, we're planning in the future a number of conferences on sort of revisionist history of war. That's been a, a topic that we've been studying for a long time. And there's an intimate connection, of course, between war and the economy. And that's been one of my big uh, research topics in recent years also. And so, uh, and, and these, these are the types of conferences that anyone can attend and, and learn from. And then the books that are produced from that or the articles, they can, they can benefit from those as well. And, and so those are some of the things we're trying to do to reach uh, everybody. Now, the Institute's been around for a while, but you have not. I mean, you've been a part of it in different ways, but now it took the helm at the end of October of last year. So as you look out into the future of, of your tenure, what do you anticipate the future of Mises Institute being as it continues to grow and expand? It is growing and expanding. We, we Like I said, we have a lot of great scholars now associated with us. We have dozens and dozens of, of uh, very accomplished academics and, and the apprentices, I'm excited about that because these are people out there like yourself who are not academics, but who are articulate and who are interested and they can write and they can speak. And that's a big thing. And we're also getting more into uh, uh, children's education, lower levels, uh, you know, introductory education with some of the books and programs in the future. And I'm also excited about uh, the types of conferences, some of them. A lot of people who have written me uh, about the Mises Institute tell me the most impactful things that come out of here, in their opinions, have been the books based on our conferences, because they're written by scholars, but they're written in, in plain English that just about anybody can understand, although it's great scholarship. And I'm looking forward to doing more of those in, in the next several years. I mentioned war and the economy as being one, one thing. The Human Action Conference would be another one. And I think uh, I'm excited about doing some great things uh, with, you know, along those lines in the next few years. And you mentioned the, the website, just Mises.org? Yes, M-I-S-E-S.org is the website. And like I said, I tell people you can get a great education of that. Our, of course, our preeminent program is Mises University. In the summer, we get 100 to 150 students, college students from all over the world. Sometimes there are more from outside of the U.S. than in the, inside the U.S., who come to Alabama in, in July to sit and, and listen to lectures for an entire week. So you know these are committed students. And, and uh, you know, we've, we've discovered some real talent over the years, like Tom Woods, for example, was a Mises mm -hmm. University student. And there, there are quite a few professors now, economics professors, who were economics Mises University students when they were in school also. So we've, uh, and, and that's sort of a, our preeminent program uh, I taught in it for about 30 years, and it's a real joy for people like me, an academic. I, I was an economics professor for 41 years before I took this job. And uh, the highlight of my year was always teaching at Mises University because of the kind of students uh, that we had there. And, uh, and that's, uh, I, I can almost can't wait until July. Well, that is excellent. It's an excellent program, and uh, the work that Mises is doing is really important. So I wish you all the best as you 
take the helm and uh, and continue to keep it growing. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate that. And our Summers Fellows Program, by the way, is also excellent. We help graduate students along in their careers. Perfect. Thanks for having me, Peter. So I, for one, generally think it's hard for libertarian ideas to break into the mainstream. But the work that all three of these groups are doing challenges that. I mean, did you catch that great example from Alabama that Nick spoke about? How Libertarian Policy Foundation and its sister C4 took away the stigma on an issue, the, the grocery tax, and did something that reduced government and helped many average people in a bipartisan way. You have the Mises Institute helping to ensure that Austrian economics takes its rightful place in academic discussions of economics. And the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing really important work reconciling two very compatible ideas that many people don't always think about as being compatible. I encourage you to go to donorstrust.org podcast and you can find links to all these groups so you can learn more. And, uh, and I hope you will. You know, all the organizations we feature in Giving Ventures thrive thanks to your support. And their thriving helps build support for the ideas of limited government and liberty that we value. We at Donors Trust are proud of the role we play in connecting donors to groups like these. And if we are already part of your giving strategy, be in touch if we can ever be of service. And if you aren't already working with Donors Trust, we stand ready to be helpful. Go to DonorsTrust.org to learn more or email me at tellmemore at DonorsTrust.org. We will be back in a couple weeks with a new episode featuring more groups doing great work. Until then, thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon.